the greatest danger is not failing to achieve the American dream. The greatest danger is achieving a dream you don't actually believe in. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. I have been aware of Courtney Martin for some time. I have read her books and her On Being blog, watched her TED Talks, heard her interviewed, and I have continually been struck by what an extraordinary human being she is. I had always wanted to meet her and was therefore delighted when a mutual friend connected us to have a conversation for this podcast. Courtney often says she writes the books she needs to read. It's a thought-provoking reflection, though I must add that she writes the books I need to read as well. It's interesting. She is like the literary equivalent of a first responder. She courageously charges into some of our most fiery debates with her keen mind, her compassion, and her inspiring call to action. I had the distinct joy of presenting Courtney with an honorary doctorate degree at Art Center's Spring 2018 graduation. The day before that event, she and I had the opportunity to sit down for a most meaningful exchange. As you will note, she is formidably intelligent, deeply kind, and touchingly vulnerable. In the end, she leaves us with a rich sense of what stirs in both heart and mind as she wrestles with pressing questions of our day. What I like to explore in this podcast at its core is the process of creativity. And one of the really interesting things about Art Center students is so many of them have these really compelling stories about who they were as little kids. Mm. And they articulate in these wonderful ways the creative spirit of who they were. And I'd like to begin that question with you. What do you remember about your own creative spirit as a small child? What I remember most vividly is actually, I think, something that my mom had the genius to create as a structure, which is that I grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and we were in this sort of old Victorian home, and there was an attic, and there was a room in the attic that my brother and I were told was our room to do anything we wanted in, including writing on the walls, um, you know, any of the stuff that would have not been allowed nice. potentially in our bedrooms or, you know, in a more formal space. Not that it was a very informal house generally, but I remember spending hours and hours and hours in that room, um, sometimes writing on the walls. I mean, as a writer, you'd think like that was the ticket, but it was more about the imagination that was unleashed there. It felt like a very private space for the kids where you were just kind of ruled. And I remember particularly with one friend who I'm still friends with, Megan, we would spend hours uh, making up incredibly elaborate games with Barbie dolls mm. and like uh, elaborate scenarios, like very theatrical and very like a lot of, you know, social, emotional complexity and like I, which is so interesting because my mom was a feminist and I'm a feminist. And so you think like Barbies, but my experience of Barbies was this great conduit to exploring like who humans are and why they interact in certain ways and what what human drama is all about and like all these things that I think actually do animate now what I'm interested in in the world and I don't think we would have played quite the way we did if it had been in a space uh, that we didn't think was like our world you were hinting at this but was there evidence of the activist social justice warrior uh, in those early days in the attic oh yeah well and not and not so much in the attic as I remember but um from a very young age I was like deeply 
curious about and outraged by what I saw as injustice. Like there's one, uh, you know, apocryphal story that my parents always tell of when I like on my own volition when I was like nine or something went around the block collecting money for hungry people, which was like this abstract notion in my head, and then came to them with the sort of okay, I've done this now, like, how do we find them? Like, where are they? And mm. they had to have this conversation with me about, like, this is a lot more complicated than it feels. So I think I, that was like an introduction of the instincts were right and the instincts were there, but the actual making of social change is incredibly complex. And it's not as simple as, as you know, knocking on doors and redistributing wealth. Do you remember yourself as a particularly open child, as somebody who was willing to be vulnerable? Or was there a particular sense of your, your own sensitivity at that time? Definitely a sensitivity. Which I detect now in a big way, too. So that's part of yeah, the reason I'm asking. Definitely you know. sensitivity. I was very I was actually very quiet. Um, I clung to my mom. Um, she talks about that. I think she said in second grade. It was like I woke up and something had shifted and all of a sudden I was more confident and more brave and, and more extroverted. But up until that time, I was just like stuck to her. And I still feel like both the girl clinging to her mom, like I have a sense of the world being a very scary place and a very messed up place and the very brave person that I became Um who wants to speak truth to power and isn't afraid of people. And so I still feel like both of those little girls in a way. Does the dynamic of the one who's scared and the one who's brave persist for you today? Yes. I mean, it's interesting because I have a four and a half year old and a one and a half year old. And part of definitionally part of becoming a mother is pretending to be very brave or being very brave. Mm. I mean, you have to have this human that all you want to do in the world is protect them and you know you can't. And on some level you have to, you know, in moments of fear, you have to kind of like be like, everything's fine. You know, that's like the definitionally part of motherhood. So in that. Though kids too are great at picking up that's hypocrisy, true. right? That's yeah, true. Yeah. So that's part of it is is feeling both of those um, kind of identities and tension within my new identity as mother. But those two parts is exactly what I feel like is happening in the world right now. I mean, I think it's this moment uh, of like absolute absolute terror and nice. total upheaval in the best possible way that like there's this huge opportunity. And, you know, I truly believe we could be on the precipice of no nuclear war. So like holding those two tensions feels both something that's happening internally for me temperamentally, but also kind of what's happening in the world. Let's talk about who you are as a writer. You said somewhere you feel most alive when you're writing. Yeah, I feel most alive when I'm writing because it is so challenging that I feel like I have to sort of fire on all cylinders if I'm doing it right. It's a lot of kind of pattern keeping for me. It's a lot of self-discipline of like, you know, having a deadline, getting my butt in the chair, you know, especially now that I have the kids and all of these sort of logistical complexity. But it also is a spiritual practice for me in the sense that I have to trust that once I get in the chair, something's going to happen that is beyond my capacity to sort of plan. So I'm not a big outliner. I mean, I love doing reporting and I love doing research. I love reading. I'm just like reading is a spiritual practice for me. But I'm not someone who sits down with a super clear plan of how uh, either, you know, a 750 word piece like a column is going to come out or even a book to some extent. I mean, to sell a book, you have to have a proposed table of contents. But I don't think my books ever actually mm. 
reflect the table of contents, which is fine with editors. They kind of assume that. But there's something mysterious that also. There's like all of the self-discipline and all of the pattern keeping and reporting and all this stuff. And then there's a moment when I sort of have to go like, all right, let's do this thing, universe. How to, you know, let, let me piece this together somehow. This is something that interests me a lot, that it's through the doing, the making, the writing that we make the discovery. It's not like it's already floating in our heads. Yes, I think through the writing itself, through the conversations I have about the topic with people. So whether I'm reporting or just happen to be talking to a friend about I'm working on this project and here, you know, this is what I'm working through. So those conversations and through feedback, I am just a massive believer in feedback and revision. And so um, whenever I'm lucky enough to have a really good edit by someone, I feel like hmm. that's part of it for mm -hmm. me. It's part of it does feel like this sort of mysterious, miraculous thing of my own brain and heart kind of piecing together everything. And then part of it is definitely about other people. Would you say that your writing helps you navigate your way through life? Oh, totally. I mean, I, I often say I write the books I need to read and I, uh -huh. I have this weekly column deadline with on being. So I, I have to every week think, what am I totally confused about this week? <laughs> you know, it's basically where I come from on things. Um, I think, other writers probably come at it at, you know, what do I, what's the thing I feel most certain about this week? But I really come almost from the opposite From the generative direction. question. Yeah. 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 So you're able to work out some of your thinking through this writing process, through this blog, through On Being. Yes. Which forces you to do that work. Yeah. But it's the creating of that piece every week that's the context for you to wrestle with those questions. Yeah. And it's a very particular muscle. I mean, I wonder what it would be like for people working in other genres. But, you know, a weekly column, which is about 750 words, is like just a very specific muscle that I now have that is about – I'm living my life. I'm looking for patterns. I'm looking for questions. I'm looking sometimes for just a moment that's totally interesting. I had one this morning. We were at Denny's at the diner. and One of Pasadena's finest Pasadena, establishments. Yes, I yeah. love Denny's. I love a cheap <laughs> diner. Um, and we saw one of those claw... Um, you know, the, the stuffed animals are in a big glass box and there's a claw that comes down oh, yeah, and you pay yeah, 50 yeah, cents. Yeah. And my daughter had never seen one of these. She's four and a half. And she was like, look at all the animals. Like, we have to get them. And I was like, oh, God. Now I have to explain to her that this is this thing where you give your money and you never get the stuffed animal. So I, I explained it to her and I said, you never get the stuffed animal. Like, it never happens. But, of course, she still, she still wanted to try. We went to the booth. We started eating. She's like, I really want to go back and do it. So then my husband said, okay, we're going to do it. But we are telling you it never happens. She gets over there. She picks out the thing she wants. My husband helps her position it. She picks that thing right up and gets the exact stuffed animal she wanted. And the whole <laughs> Denny's diner started cheering. Wow. And I, it was this – that's a moment where I'm like, oh, that's probably going to become a column because it's something about – on the one hand, we have to prepare ourselves – and our children for, like, the worst in the world. But if you don't hold out the hope that you might get that stuffed animal with that, like, shitty claw that everyone has been disappointed by, like, what are you doing in life? Like, you can't we, – if we had not let her do the thing, it would have been deeply depressing. What and so it becomes – you know, it spins out this whole metaphor of, like, thinking about expectation and – and optimism and like what is the balance and both and, for ourselves and, how we, and our children. Right, and how we prepare our children for that, which... Or ourselves, we, Yeah, you know? or ourselves, yeah. right, right. Sometimes the claw delivers. Yeah, right? and and, yeah. and like what is life without believing that it might? Especially when mm -hmm. the stake, it's 50 cents. So mm -hmm. like part of me is very practical and was thinking like I don't want to do this with her and I don't want to weather her disappointment. But this other part of me was like, well, 
you know, this is life. You got to believe in the claw just a tiny bit. So <laughs> that's the kind of thing that literally happened this morning. And like in my head as I'm experiencing it, I'm thinking like, well, that was amazing. And then I'm thinking, huh, well, maybe that's a column. You are often referred to as wise. And it's certainly a description I completely agree with. Oh, thank you. That's a huge compliment. And I was trying to really think about where I find the wisdom. And there are some very clear places one looks just in terms of the penetrating insights you offer and the ideas and the ways in which you see the world as you just described, actually. But it's something about your writing that I wanted to explore with you. And that is that when I read your work, it oscillates for me between this sort of level of careful research, intellectual reasoning clarity of prose. And then underneath it is this vulnerable, struggling, questioning soul that I see. And Mm. it's the relationship there, that oscillation between those two elements that draws me in and does help me think about the wisdom of your work. Does that resonate for you at all? Well, I'm just deeply honored by it. I mean, that's who I aspire to be. When you think of your writing or your experience of your own writing, do you see those levels operating? I do. Yeah. I mean, I think the challenge for me is I've always felt a little bit of like a I don't quite fit in any genre. Like I'm a journalist, but I'm not Mm -hmm. a journalist in the straightforward way, as you described my my sort of compulsion to always think about how do I fit into this and my own vulnerability. And, you know, I'm working on a series right now about public education as an example and how white parents have been the obstacle to integration in many ways in public school systems. And a traditional journalist would would research that, write about it, and never use the first person, never use the I. I am researching it, writing about it, and talking about my own torturous right. process of thinking right. about That's what you where do. to send my kid to school. For me, it's the source of the strength of your writing, oh, that, that you're you able much. to come forward very personally, very vulnerably sometimes. And yet, I mean, it, there's the other side there too, the frame and the context and the study and the reason and the careful approach that you bring as well. No, oh, thank you. Yeah. I'm really intrigued by people who operate in, in between genres or blending different genres or practices. So I'm flattered to be one in your eyes. At her core, Courtney is a healer who seeks to offer remedies to what ails us individually and collectively. She tackled body image issues in her first book, Perfect Girls, Starving Daughters. She then explored questions of living with HIV in The Naked Truth, a collaboration with AIDS activist Marvelyn Brown. In 2010, she co-edited Click, a collection of essays on transformative moments of feminist awakening. That same year, she published Do It Anyway a deep dive into the lives of young activists. That was followed by Project Rebirth, Survival and Strength of the Human Spirit from 9-11 Survivors, and in the most recent and perhaps most ambitious work, The New Better Off, Courtney looks at the ways in which a new generation is redefining the American dream and what it means to lead a successful and meaningful life in today's world. You've published six books, right? Five books. Okay, so I get six. Let's just see if we can figure them out. Project Rebirth? Yes. Click? Yes. A Naked Truth? Yes. And then Perfect Girl, Do It Anyway, New Better oh, Off? Oh, you're right. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I, I think of um, Naked Truth as really not mine. I did write it technically start to finish, but mm-hmm. it's 
I was like, you know, a ghostwriter. I see. Okay. But, you know, okay. I did write it. All right. You've written five or six books. Yeah. And I'm just interested in those books that you have written on your own and those books in which you collaborate. And I'm very interested in the idea of collaboration. Is that an interesting difference for you? Yeah, hugely different. I think um, writing a single author book, I often think of like those are like my babies. Like those are, I have a lot of control. I, you know, have a lot of responsibility, a lot of heartache because it's just, you know, as much as there is an editor and there is, you know, friends that I'm talking to about it and there are the people I'm interviewing, so they're informing it, it does feel like I'm really holding holding the weight. Whereas with collaborations, I think the weight is more around, collaboration, as you put it, is like the most powerful, transcendent, like amazing thing. And it's also hellishly challenging. From your point of view or your experience, what does it take to be a good collaborator? It's funny because I... I actually feel like what it takes to be a good collaborator is just so basic. It's just like, do what you say you'll do. Like, show up. As a member of the team. Yeah. Like, just do what you say you'll do. Because that, I mean, I, I would say 90% of when I see collaboration fall apart, it's because someone just isn't accountable. And people are not accountable for all kinds of important reasons. It's not mm -hmm. like everyone is just flaky. But people are kind of flaky. Like, mm -hmm. a lot of people just do not show up and do the work. I actually... Really, I'm not from a family of like artists or writers. I'm from like a very kind of traditional middle class Western family. And I really am grateful for that conditioning because I feel like I just have this work ethic. Like I just think like if you got a job, you show up, like you meet the deadline. And it's probably also part of my temperament, but I just have a very like working class approach to even writing and art. Whereas I knew people when I went to Barnard College, um, Ivy League school, like lots of people with a lot more wealth coming into that place. And there was a lot of sort of preciousness and sort of temp, you know, like a lot of people just not being in the right mood to show up in the way they were supposed to and stuff. So I think for me, like the number one thing is just do what you say you're going to do. And if you can't do it, let people know. And then like know where you know your gifts and really own them and be really willing to give up the stuff that is not your gifts in terms of the actual work. So Which is starting to echo the new better off, actually. Oh, right? that's interesting. Yeah. 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 So like actually the book that that I was saying, I don't necessarily count as one of my books is a book I wrote from start to finish, but it was a young HIV AIDS activist, Marvelyn Brown, who I met. We both got an award for activism. And she, I realized she had this incredible life story. She got, she contracted HIV at 19 years old, had no idea what it was. She, I mean, she associated it with like, you know, pictures of African children. She had no idea it was a domestic disease at all. And ended up having this incredible journey in life and becoming the spokesperson. And and she did not want to write at all. She had no interest in writing, but she did want a book because it was a good platform for getting her story out there and educating particularly young black women about HIV and AIDS. So she and I had this super clear understanding where she would come to my apartment. I was living in Brooklyn. So was she. She'd come to my apartment. I would just interview her for hours and take notes. And then I wrote her book um, as if it were a novel, basically, and she were a character. And then she would look at it and, you know, say, I would never use that word. Oh, that's hilarious. You got that that mm. so right. Mm. And I had a friend that I talked to about it where I said, you know, I'm trying to make sure I'm navigating the ethics of all this appropriately because it just feels like such a huge responsibility. And um, she actually gave me a great metaphor. She said, basically, like, you're the architect for a house. So the house has to look how Marvelin wants it to look. But you know more about the foundations of what makes a good house. 
So you have to tell her if she wants to put, you know, a window right there and that's actually going to make the foundation shaky. Like you have to tell her that. So that really helped. And it was like there was no confusion. Like Marvelyn did not want to write. I can write. She had the amazing story. So it's like that was so clear. In other cases, it's obviously less clear. But um, I collaborate a lot actually with my husband on various things. And I think um, we have such a good sense now after doing this for years of like, you know, John is a detail oriented um, like king. He can like find the extra space between two sentences. Mm. And I'm the brush, the, you know, broad stroke, like, mm. Okay, like you're missing this big underlying theme. And so I think it's, you know, knowing yourself and your gifts and owning them and and also knowing what you're not good at and finding collaborators who can work with you on that and just having humility around the stuff you're not good at. Because I think a lot of people feel, you know, and maybe it, it gets back to vulnerability, but feel like they don't want to admit what they actually aren't good right, at. And right. I'm very ready to do that right. at this point in my life. I'd like to talk about your last two books. I'd like to talk about Do It Anyway and this great book about human action and resilience. Maybe if you can tell the listeners a little bit about the book before I dive in with you. Sure. So it's um, it's a collection of profiles, long, you know, sort of 10,000 word, like deep profiles of individual activists at the time who were 35 and under. And my question was really, how do you sustain this life? And that can obviously break your heart. And how do you know you're you're doing something worthwhile? Like, how do people measure that? And it grew out of my own disillusionment out of college. And um, I graduated in 2002, and it was like the wars and, and Bush and just feeling like I'd been sort of built up to think social change was this, you know, glamorous, exciting pursuit and pretty quickly realized this is like a lifelong slog in many ways. And so how does one sustain a life of this? And rumor has it that you uh, considered burning yourself on the steps of the White House at one point. That was a big, yeah. Except your mother told you otherwise. It is so wild now to think about that I was that desperate then, given the <laughs> politics we're now experiencing. I'm like, wow, I had no idea how right. bad things were going to get. But yeah, I was very, there was a, a point at which I felt like deeply desperate and I think just like wildly convinced of how powerless I was, which is fascinating to me now, um, given like how much privilege I had and and have and I have the capacity to write and I, you know, I have all of these tools that I now and, you know, maybe it's just with age, but I'm like, that is fascinating that I felt that powerless. Um, But I and I do think it speaks to a pretty accurate read of what the culture was telling me about social change and who I was um, in some ways because of that privilege, but a misread about how the world actually works. But then again, there it is, you know, my sort of sense of you as wanting to reach out, make a difference in the world and making yourself completely and utterly vulnerable to the point of burning yourself. Right. Right. I mean, it's that same relationship that I think it's such a wonderful source of your strength, too. Thank you. Yeah. That's nice of you to say. Yeah, my, a source of my strength, I'm sure, a source of my parents' consternation yeah. that I'm always yeah. coming the, up with the these The parent point of things. view I yeah. could talk about in a whole different context. <laughs> yeah. 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 To me, one of the most striking points of that book is that you encourage, you almost exhort us to find our passion or our gifts and to move from there. You don't say, look at the world, see all of its horrors, and do something about it. You say, instead, look at yourself, know your heart, and move out from there. Yes, I think that is really 
Um, I got so obsessed with that Frederick Breuchner quote, find where your deep gladness meets the world's deep need. And I am even more convinced of that today, you know, maybe 10 years since I worked on that book, because I've seen so much misguided effort to create social change that is about other people, about this sort of entirely analytical thing of analyzing what needs fixing and coming up you know, wholesale with some solution for it that is just so disconnected from the human who's doing it and from the the kind of energy that will actually sustain wise um, social change. Um, so, yeah, I couldn't I, I agree with it even more today. Yeah, because, I mean, there's plenty of need out there, right? Oh, yeah. But the first place to look is within ourselves. I have to say I knew the Rachel Corey mm. story. I had no idea. What a gifted and unbelievable writer she was. Extraordinary. Unbelievable. I mean, part of why I wrote about her, this is a young woman who is from Walla Walla, Washington, and was kind of looking for a way to get involved in social change and use her privilege and ended up, you know, through very weird twists and turns in Palestine. Horrible tragedy, yeah. Um, put herself in between a bulldozer and a Palestinian home and was run over and killed um, at, at, like, in her mid-20s, I think it was, maybe late 20s, and became a, a really weird symbol for both sides. It was like kind of the Palestinian and anti-Israeli side obviously embraced her as a martyr. The Israeli side made her out to be this um, absolute fool, which if, as you said, you look at her writing, there's no fool there. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was really trying to think about what does it mean to have a white Western American body how can I use that in this way, in this moment? What is the power in that? So, yeah, I just find her so extraordinary. This idea that we need to look at ourselves and find strength in the midst of how we respond to the world reminded me of a very profound experience I had when I lived in the East Bay in the Bay Area. I had the opportunity to work on the uh, Ed Roberts campus. Oh, wonderful. And to work with that community. And uh, for listeners who don't know Ed Roberts, he was really the, the founder of the disability community and of particularly of the independent living movement. Yeah. And the thing about Ed Roberts' philosophy that I found so powerful was the statement was, don't give us your pity. Right. Remove the impediments that keep us from living independent lives. Give right. us our dignity. Right. And so all those curb cuts in thousands of cities around the world are all Ed saying, give us That's our amazing. independence. Yeah. yeah. Which also... Turns out if you, you know, design and build cities for people who are disabled, they're better for people who are able-bodied. And yeah. I mean, there's so I, this is a part of why I'm just so obsessed with being part of, uh, you know, being a subject within my own kind of moral investigations, because I think privilege blinds us to so many of the ways. And just that that whole pity thing is such a deep mistake. It's like. I mean, if you've interacted with folks who have disabilities, and of course there's a range of them and a range of experiences, but many times as the able-bodied person, you realize right away, like this has led to a whole different level of understanding about the world and awareness and experience of the world that I don't have at all because I take for granted this body that moves through the world with more ease and therefore like more distraction and less empathy and kind yeah. of all these things. So I love that work. Let's move on to the new better off. I'll tell you, I detected an interesting continuity from the end of Do It Anyway to the beginning oh, of the new better tell off. Me. I well, have no idea. So at the end of the first book, you talk about failure, and despite the inevitable disappointment, mm. we must do it anyway. We must act. We're obliged to act to find meaning in life. And then at the beginning of the new better off, you also explore success and failure, but you challenge the standards of the metrics themselves. Mm. 
And the book starts to reinvestigate our language around that. My first book, Perfect Girls, Starving Daughters, and then Do It Anyway, The New Generation of Activists, and then New Better Off, those are my three, like, single author, baby, you know, these are my mm. baby kind of that we were talking about. Right. And I've, I have broadly been like, oh, all of them wrestle with, we were told something was the definition of success, and it's all bullshit, and, like, what is what is actually success and so you know with body image that's obviously around perfectionism and appearance and all this stuff with activism it was like this totally irrational notion that you could like protest and there you know it'd be fireworks and things would change right away and you would be the hero and whatever and you know with new better off it's around american dream and what we're told versus what it's actually like so i like get that thread but the way you articulated i've never thought about before so thank you so why don't you tell listeners a little bit about The New Better Off, Reinventing the American Dream. So The New Better Off is an exploration. I said, you know, as I said, I read the books I need to read. I was 29 years old, like trying to figure out, okay, I'm really going to do this adult thing. Where do I live? How do I live? What kind of family do I have? What kind of community do I create? What matters in work? Sort of all these questions are up. And, and interestingly, the exact moment that the recession happens. And so I'm like watching the narrative in mass media and I'm like wow like not only am I totally confused but it turns out the whole country has been very confused about what actually matters and where we've been putting our trust and energy and all that so I used it as an attempt to sort of look at a bunch of different things um, around the sort of the quote-unquote good life so is it about having the home with a white picket fence is it about having the fancy job is there such thing as enough money how is our attention diluted by the devices that we now think are the key to the American dream? What kind of possessions actually lead to a thriving life versus clutter our sort of spaces and minds? And and sort of just wrestling with all these questions that I felt like were out in the culture, but sort of the dots hadn't quite been connected for me. And to what extent do you feel like this context that you investigate may appeal to us idiosyncratically versus it's something that is kind of building momentum within a generation? Well, I'm hopeful that it's building momentum in part because of necessity that, you know, it's so hard to afford a home that then it kind of makes you question in a sad way, sort of, okay, this is not accessible to me, but what does it actually mean anyway? Mm-hmm. Um, and so people that maybe 15 years ago would have been buying homes they couldn't afford. Um, I, you know, I wish homes were more accessible is basically the bottom line. But since they're not, I think it's actually, and the, you know, bubble has burst. It's like, I think there is more soul searching among millennials of sort of saying like, all right, maybe I don't actually want to own a home. Maybe that's not what I think is the pinnacle of success, and I'm not going to work myself to the bone for that particular marker. It seems that the fundamental of the new better off is about community. I think, to paraphrase, you said something like, as human beings, we're not self-made. We're ultimately products of community. And I wonder if you could unpack that for us a little bit. Exactly, yeah. Well, it's just every question I would start with it seemed like the end point somehow ended up being community even things that felt very individual in nature like thinking about attention um, and this question of like being on our cell phones and this was supposed to be the thing that um, freed us from our desks allowed us to work from anywhere at any time and now it's like robbed us of our capacity to be present with one another 
okay, so what's the solution? Well, the solution is we individually should have more willpower to not be on our cell phones. Well, that doesn't seem like it's going to really work. So then you see all these people creating community around that, you know, digital detoxes and people doing Shabbats where they don't get on their cell phones. Yeah, it's Tiffany very Schling, communal. Yeah, right. Um, Technology Shabbat. I or think you have people more. thinking about design. How do we actually design? And I'm seeing this more and more, and I'm so interested in it. How do we actually design devices that support people to not be addicted to technology. And I see more I in the piece in that chapter, I actually profiled something called the Hemming Wright that was a right. essentially like a glorified typewriter that all these people supported on Kickstarter because all these writers were like, oh, my God, this is genius. I need something <laughs> that can focus my attention. And there's a new thing called the light phone that's just out that is basically taking cell phone technology, like dialing it back so that all the fo- it's essentially like a flip phone, but beautifully designed. And people are like gaga over it. So I'm really interested in how design is thinking about this, um, which also feels communal in its own way. It's like it's not about the individual person having the right willpower. It's about like how do we support each other culturally and, you know, in terms of actual design to yeah. live better lives. You'd be interested to know that I interviewed Eve Bahar, who's mm. a rock star in the world of design and technology. Yeah, I know uh, his work. He's wrestling with the same question. Yeah, I think most like pretty moral designers are because yeah, yeah. we all experience this in our individual lives. So reflecting on what am I creating? You know, historically, I think designers were doing soul searching around sustainability and environmental stuff, and they're still doing that. But now I think one of the pieces of soul searching is around attention, the attention economy, and like, how am I contributing to people being present with one another and mm. and being able to be self-aware versus... Yeah, and as I said to him, and I'll say again, it bears repeating, as someone who's leading an art design college, we can't ask that question enough, mm. you know? We need our students to be really rigorous with that point. Yeah, it's really so profound. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the reinventing the American dream piece of it. When I think about how the American dream has been critiqued. Mm -hmm. I think about great plays in the history of American drama. I think about Willie Loman and Mm -hmm. Death of a Salesman and and his family and that experience or Lorraine Hansberry's uh, Raisin in the Mm -hmm. Sun. I want to take your theater class on the American dream. Have you ever taught that? I have not, though. Maybe you'll inspire me to do it. I would be your first student. That would be amazing. These plays critique the American dream because they show so powerfully and with such poignancy the narrowness of it and the pain when you can't get into it, Mm -hmm. right? And you can't be part of it. And you're saying that, but you're also pushing it to something else. Mm -hmm. I'm also saying... If you get it, watch out. As I've said in in the TED Talk I did on the book, is that the greatest danger is not failing to achieve the American dream. The greatest danger is achieving a dream you don't actually believe in. Because I have, I think in some ways, I have straddled a lot of kind of class identities coming from sort of a more middle class background and being exposed to Barnard and this elite college and working at TED and traveling in these fancy worlds at different moments and just being so clear that having a lot of money you know, it's the most cliche in the world thing in the world, but does not buy happiness. And yet our entire culture is still set up around that. And, you know, obviously people need to make money and the 17 percent of Americans who are poor need money. Like this is not to, you know, make light of the fact that there is a, a real deep wealth inequality that needs to be dealt with in this country. But it is to say, like, that is a really bad plan if you if like you are 20 years old and your whole goal is to figure out how to make a lot of money like we you could not have more actual evidence that that is not going to lead to happiness mm. 
And yet it's so dominant. Like it's, it's dom- still it's also, so dominant. Yeah. Maybe it's also intermittent reinforcement. You know, sometimes you get it or you get a taste of it. Sometimes the claw delivers. Right. <laughs> Back to our claw. Exactly. <laughs> Although I have yeah. to say the purple bunny that Maya got from that claw was way better than like a mansion. She will she will love it for a long time. But this is like also a generational swing. I think we all like whatever we were raised with, we have to like push against and then usually come back to. And I remember my brother had this like major um, Alex P. Keaton, like Republican banker phase. My parents are like these two old, you know, progressive hippies. And um, and he totally grew out of it. He's an experimental poet. So it's like we all have to swing around a little bit, I think. Mm -hmm. And, And so whether you grew up in like an immigrant family where you really didn't have money. And so, of course, you are are aiming to get money because you actually want the taste of financial security in a very real way. And then, you know, some people transcend that and realize, you know what, we've we've gotten to the point where it actually isn't meaningful anymore. And interestingly, you might find this interesting with New Better Off, one of the biggest responses I got in terms of reader response was children of immigrants who said, I've bought your book for my parents to try to help them understand the choices I'm making. Oh, wow. Because there's this whole generation of like parents who fought so hard to give their kids every opportunity. And now their kids are saying, I don't want to make six figures. I don't want to live in a fancy house. I don't want the life that you worked so hard to make sure I could have. And so that feels like such a betrayal to a lot of these parents. But it's actually coming from a really thoughtful place from the kids. It's not a rejection of them. It's really like trying to wrestle with what does it mean to live a, a worthwhile life. Yeah, fascinating. It's, but, and, yeah. It, you know, we've talked about the class issues. I think the the gender issues are really profound, too. And And this is in some ways like the least obviously feminist book I've written, but I feel like it's so feminist. Like the one chapter I have on work-family balance is about men and about fatherhood. And the way that I see fathers now wrestling in what I think is a super productive, hopeful way with the working on things they love and taking care of who they love and that that's actually a conflict men are having. And I think men have had it for generations a little bit, but now it's just like this very powerful. Yeah, we did. I'm probably closer to your parents' generation, but we did. We were wrestling with those questions for sure when my kids were really little. Absolutely. Although I'm guessing not particularly publicly, and, and there were a lot of guys you knew who weren't wrestling with it, right? Many, and there was no such thing as paternity leave or anything right. like that. Yeah. Right, whereas I feel like there's this tipping point among this generation of kind of millennial oh, fathers absolutely. who are going like, absolutely, no, yeah. I don't want to work 24 hours, yeah. and that's that's going to shift things. But I, I did know some guys who did that, actually, stay yeah. home with their kids. And they probably felt deeply isolated, is my mm. guess. You know, it was, I think, pr- probably stay-at-home dads feel isolated now, too, but um, much less so. I think there's more of sort of a cultural moment of accept- accepting and acknowledging that, like, actually this work world, as we've structured it, doesn't work for anyone. Not It's not about women. I want to go into a whole new Okay. Area here at this point, you wrote a piece for the On Being website on apology and deep healing, mm-hmm. in which you really tried to address the question of what do we know about genuine apology and deep healing. So I wonder if you could just riff on that a little bit. I think it's an enormously important question right now mm-hmm. in this moment and in, in our time. Well, I'm resisting saying, what do you know about apology and deep healing? Because I, I mean, I literally don't know much about it. I mean, that piece grew out of what I described as my creative process, which is I'm walking through the world and I'm hearing 
you know, I, I'm deeply involved in it, the conversations around race and privilege and, you know, how are we shifting as a country and how am I shifting as a white privileged person? And I'm like always wrestling with this stuff. So I'm hearing a lot of pushback from friends of color around language, around who's on a stage at a conference, around who gets hired for jobs. It's sort of this like constant running stream of critique, all of which feels very important. But I start to sense that underneath that sort of tactical level of critique that I'm hearing all the time is like this deep pain that is going unacknowledged, which sounds quite obvious now that I'm saying it out loud, but it's like we live in this country where slavery was like actually quite recent and we're all walking around as if it's this thing that's totally in the past that is somehow, you know, the book has been closed and actually the book is very open and we are all kind of thinking about race on on what actually is a is an important as i said tactical level but also could be quite shallow when there's this like deep 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 pain that is that i think burdens people of color but also deeply burdens white people and so this sense that white people like myself have of like I don't know how to do it right. I don't know how how to say the right things. I don't know how to make the right decisions. I want to be part of this, but like I feel very defeated. The constant critique, and actually, the more conscious you get, and the more you try to do it, the more you get critiqued because then people of color are like, "Oh, you actually care." Then I'm really going to tell you how fucked up things are. Mm-hmm. And it feel and so it just feels like this constant process, which it should be for your whole life, but that you can't kind of quote unquote win. Which is a very white way to think about things, but but yet underneath, I'm thinking like, oh, like I need to to apologize and be healed. Like we are all part of this like deep racial wound, and so on the one hand, there's all this great upheaval, and you know, people are making change and thinking about representation and equity and restorative justice. And on the other hand, like I'm convinced that we we've done almost nothing to actually acknowledge the depth of the racial wound that we're all walking around with. And one element of it for me, in exactly the way you describe it in the Me Too movement as well, there's very understandable, to put it mildly, outrage and anger. Right. And that needs its time. Yeah. But I think the question you're asking also nags at us at the same time, right? Absolutely. How do you hold that, you know, there are women who've been harassed and assaulted and, you know, there's all of this corruption and, like, you know, just incredible dysfunction and corruption and, you know, abuses of power on behalf of, you know, that men are, men have, have violated women with. But on the other hand, we live in an entirely screwed up sexual culture where men themselves have not been given the tools or the acculturation to have a healthy sexuality or a healthy relationship with their own power or any of these things. And so, like, I'm very much about accountability. But beyond that, I hate when there's this sense that, like, you know, okay, Harvey Weinstein's in trouble and he can never work again. So, like, case closed. It's like something created Harvey Weinstein. And and he's particularly egregious. But, like, all of the men who have been called out, like we live in a culture that has helped create them. So like Which doesn't let them off the hook. No. But complicates the issue. Right. And requires having the attention span to get to the cultural piece. To get to those questions of okay, 
this is an individual perpetrator who should be held accountable, but what is the water we're all swimming in and how do we actually change that water? When the hurt is so raw, when the anger is so strong, when the outrage is so real, it's very difficult to find the place where you can begin to start having really the kind of conversation I felt like you, you were trying to reach for, to touch a little bit in terms of healing and apology. Yeah, for sure. And as a president of a college campus in the United States, I'm aware of that. I yeah. think we're really having trouble figuring out how to brook disagreement. Yeah, you know? which is so good. I mean, that's the, mm. the, the promising thing to me is just like, oh, we're actually struggling with this instead of people all swallowing the, pain, the personal pain of hearing someone say something that is deeply offensive to them or thinking sexual harassment is just like, that's just part of life and I just have to, you know, deal with it like most of a generation older. And for sure that struggle is going on. But I think in that, in that particular blog piece that you were pointing to, you were at least signaling another conversation down the road that yes. is well, I, I, to me equally necessary and a place where we hopefully can move to at some point when, again, we're ready. Right. One of the things you do, uh, interestingly, I guess it's in Do It Anyway, is you really critique the Save the World flag that all of us carry. Mm -hmm. That's interesting to me, but I do really want to ask you, have you really been able to rid yourself of that baked-in exhortation that all of us carry? Yes. Yes. I mean, I I think it's an object-subject thing. It's like, if you think you need to save the world, then the world is an object that you are not a part of. Mm. And the older I get, the more I investigate various, you know, social, political, economic problems, the more convinced I become that there is no object. Like we are all part of the object. So I can't save the world in any particular way that doesn't mean I am doing something differently in my own life. That's great. Um, you know, which Returning to, for example, this question of public education in this country and how unintegrated it is, you know, as a white parent, I can choose to send my kid to a private school or agitate to get them into the best public school um, and care deeply about public education and donate or, you know, you know, sign petitions or whatever I can do. But as long as I am not seeing my white child as a part of that system and the choices I make as contributing to that system and potentially even admitting that my white child is going to need to get less of certain resources in order to make sure that other kids, black and brown kids, get more. Like, I mean, I, that's where it's at for me these days is like, and, that, and you know, that's where whiteness and privilege and all these things are particularly alive for me is like the save the world mentality is the world is something we are acting on and maybe we're trying to get other people I get it the good stuff we have I'm really glad I asked you that yeah, yeah that was, that but was... we actually I think have to either it's not necessarily about giving stuff up sometimes it is about giving some stuff up but it's seeing yourself as part of the entire beautiful. It's great. system it's beautiful thank you for uh, your beautiful heart and your um, formidable mind and for uh, really giving so much to the world you give us strength Courtney oh, thank you this has very, been very special. such a gift it's just like, I'm going to re-listen to this when I have moments of, of self-doubt and thinking like, I don't fit anywhere. I'm going to like re-listen to how you, the questions you asked and the way you talked about my work. It's just been an incredible affirmation. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Change Lab. The best way to support the show is to share it with your community. 
And please feel free to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or the Apple Podcasts app. For a deeper dive into the astonishing creativity and innovation coming out of Art Center, please visit our website at artcenter.edu. Thanks for listening. Change Lab is produced and recorded at Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, California. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producers Christine Spines and Matt Mays, editor Emily Van Bergen, audio engineer Nick Petrilla, and post-production provided by Freedom Podcasting.